We've been studying the book of James for three months, and today we come to the ending of what many New Testament scholars consider the first book of the first pastor of the first church in the New Testament. What we face today is the ending section of a historical book. Writing end of a book is always hard. Finishing the story well is almost elusive. That's why latest James Bond movie received many mixed reviews for its ending, and many people don't like a Squid Game's ending. So how would you end the book of James, a.k.a. the proverb of the New Testament? Let me recap briefly the wisdom of the gospel in the book of James. Chapter 1 teaches us about the transforming trials into pure joy by becoming doers of the world rather than hearers of the word. Chapter 2 is about overcoming favoritism with a faith in God, and faith in God ultimately leads us to be a faithful friendship with God like Abraham and Rahab. And chapter 3 shows us perfect wisdom to domesticate our wild tongue and defeat the worldly wisdom with a heavenly wisdom. And chapter 4 and 5 warns us about the worldliness and materialism. Last week, from Han, thank God, and we learned about being a patient and productive for God's harvest. In fact, the last week's call for perseverance could be a fitting end of this book. But if you're James, the pastor of a Jerusalem church, and you already told your former members who are scattered around the world because of a persecution, and you already talked about the topics of trials and faithfulness to law and importance of tongue and godly wisdom and godliness and the stewardship, what else would you say more? Or what would be your last word to them? What James tells us in the ending of his letter today is not a typical salutation. Here we will see a pastor's heart and concerns as well as a He's a confession on God's saving grace and our calling. With that, let us read James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. Is there anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is there anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is there anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they sin, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even though as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and heavens gave land, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over multitude of sins. Flowers fall, and the words of God last forever. Last word of a pastor Jacob or James was none other than pray. In verse 13 to 18, for every verse, 
James mentioned pray or prayer. The last command and the wise word of the, that James called his beloved congregation and us today was just pray. Just pray. That's the title of today's sermon. I didn't get the idea from the Nike. I got the idea from uh, after reading a moving story of a Christian who witnessed his mother's last hours battling a ravaging cancer. Out of excruciating pain, the mother exerted her final strength to speak her last word. And her last word was, just love. And then she passed away. What a beautiful, powerful, wise word it was. Like this loving mother, Pastor James was telling his beloved brothers and sisters, including us, is the last word. Just pray. Just pray. When we just pray, do you know what will happen? We will have prevailing life. We will have a prevailing life. That's what James promised us in verse 16. Prayer of a righteous person is a powerful and effective. The Greek word for powerful is actually means prevailing. And Greek word for effective is energetic. With prayer, we are energized and we will prevail over troubles, sickness, and sins, and all kinds of errors. By the way, don't be intimidated by the expression, the prayer of a righteous person. Because power of a prayer does not lie on the person who says a prayer, but the one who hears our prayer. Amen? So even though our prayers can be a clumsy, awkward, and our attempts may be very feeble, when we just pray to God, God will make a difference in our life, and God will make us a prevailing and energize. Hallelujah. So today I want to share with you the four principles of a prevailing prayers. Uh, with these four questions, that is, you know, uh, when do we pray? How do we pray? Why do we pray? For whom we pray. Okay? So first, when do we pray? According to James, we pray in bad times and good times. Obviously, we pray when we are in trouble. Verse 13, is there anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. This is not the first time we heard James telling us pray in troubled times. At the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, James told us to consider all kinds of trials pure joy because a testing of a faith will mature us and perfect us. And the way for us to face our trial is to ask God or pray to God for wisdom. And he said God will give his wisdom to all without finding fault. So book of James starts with a prayer and ends with a call for prayer. What do you call it? When something, it calls the inclusio of the book. Prayer is the inclusio of the book. What was new here in chapter 5 is that James did not stop with praying for the bad times, but he continued immediately with a good time. Is anyone happy? Let them sing song of a, songs of a praise. James was telling us that prayer is not just crisis management, but a constant rhythm of life for Christians. So even when we don't have any troubles and everything goes well, and Baylor is winning, 
We continue to pray. Why? More than anything, prayer is relational. Prayer is a relational. As a relationship is based on communication, a true relationship means communication about all times. Not only in critical times, but also in comfortable times. Do you call your friends and family members only when you have a need? I hope not. Likewise, our God wants us to talk to him even when we don't have an emergency. God loves to hear from us all the time. Amen? Billy Graham said one very uh, proper thing on this. We are to pray in times of adversity lest we become faithless and unbelieving. We are to pray in times of prosperity lest we become boastful and proud. We are to pray in times of danger, lest we become fearful and doubting. We are to pray in times of security, lest we become self-sufficient. True prayer is a way of a life, not just for use in cases of an emergency. Make prayer a habit, and when the need arises, you will be already in practice. For me, Praising is not just another kind of a prayer, especially in good times. Praising is an ultimate prayer. Praising is a feasible only when my mind sees God and my heart feels his presence. You know, praising is the ultimate hobby of all believers. That's how all the faithful servants of God in the past pray. For instance, Daniel openly prayed to God, when everyone was prohibited to worship anyone but King Darius. Paul and Silas praised God in Philippian jail after being falsely accused and beaten. If a praising God is the right thing to do, even in the bad time, how much more it is in good time and grateful time. And that's why in our house church, weekly house church, we share weekly praising report first and then prayer requests. And I want to give you a practical tip that if you struggle with the praying, I encourage you to increase praising. Praising. Praising God is not just singing, but praying with a melody. Praising God can soften our heart and open our mind and even our tongues to speak to God. You know, that's why I love to come to our monthly PNP, Praise and Prayer Night, on the first Monday evening of every month. And uh, I wish we can praise and pray longer. We do just an hour and a half, you know, concluding with the communion, but I hope we can do longer. And uh, I pray that more people take advantage of a monthly PNP. And uh, I want to tell you, if you have a daily PNP, Praising and Prayer, just for 10, 15 minutes, you will see a difference in your life, and your faith will be stronger than before. By the way, why don't you know my favorite form of praising these days is YouTube. You know, YouTube is a practically karaoke, and they just find the one praising song that you love, and this algorithm automatically takes you to the next song. So you know, sometimes. I stay I praising with the YouTube, on YouTube with the YouTube for an hour, and then my spirit soars soars to heaven. 
Okay, if you are not still convinced of a critical need of a constant rhythm of a praise and prayer in your life, let me quote you one more thing. It's from Martin Luther said, if you are not still convinced of a critical need for constant rhythm of a prayer, oh, I'm sorry, the Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. According to Luther, prayer is a breathing of our soul. When breathing is difficult, no one can enjoy living. Constant rhythm of prayer and praise will supply ample oxygen called the presence of God into our soul and life. I just want to remind the house church shepherds, you cannot serve your house church unless you pray first, unless you praise God first. We don't work for God. We work with God through the prayer. Amen? Let me go to the second question. Is how do we pray? The second principle of a prevailing prayer is that a prevailing prayer uses a balanced cure. Today we will see both balanced cure and complete cure. Look at the verse 14. Is there anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church, pray over them, and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. According to James, when early Christians pray for their sick members, by the way, praying for the sick members of spiritual, praying for the cure and health of our spiritual and physical members is a very biblical, and that's why we update our you know, weekly you know, uh, prayer requests for the health-concerned families. And so far, we, we are really pleased to see someone like uh, Sarah Chung is a you know, bird of uh, death after the you know, critical stroke, and now she is recovering and functioning, slowly recovering a normal function. So these are the something that we, you know, church is supposed to do. Now, here, early Christians, they are not only praying for the sick members, they also used the common medical treatment of the day. That's why they anointed a sick member with oil. You know, according to New Testament scholars, using oil on the body of the sick person was both ritual and medicinal. It was a ritual because, you know, Old Testament, they anoint special people for God with oil, such as prophet, I mean, priest, king, and prophet. So when they uh, anoint a, a sick person with oil, they are telling that anointing person that you are being set apart for God's special attention and care. So it's a special encouragement. It's a ritual. It is also a medicinal. It's a well-known, uh, it is also medicinal at the time. For instance, do you remember the uh, parable of a good Samaritan? When Good Samaritan found a wounded traveler on the road, what did he do? According to Luke chapter 10, verse 34, he went over to him, bandages his wound, pouring on what? Oil and wine. Why did he put oil and wine? He wasn't making a salad dressing here. He was sanitizing and softening, softening the wound. You know, Good Samaritan was giving the victim of a crime a basic medical treatment. So here we see another important principle of a prayer. That is, a prayer is not only relational, but also rational. Prayer is a rational. 
There's a misunderstanding for some people to see prayer irrational or just emotional. You know, when I was a non-Christian, I thought Christians, Christian prayer was imaginary and definitely, you know, irresponsible. I thought Christians abandoned their human responsibility to their imaginary God called Father and then do nothing about their problem. That's not what James and early Christians did. They not only prayed for the God's healing, but also provided human medical treatment. And I want us to know this important truth that Christian faith has no conflict with a science. We, there is no conflict between science and faith, let alone the medicine. Faith and medicine go hand in hand. That's what I call the basic cure for Christians. There is a very inspiring, almost incredible Christian witness and missionary named Bruce Olson. Bruce Olson uh, is an autobiography book called Brusco. And uh, how many of you heard of this book, Brusco? All right, Han. David? Okay. In, where did you read it? In Baylor? Or on your own? Wow, I'm impressed with, by David. All right, anyone else? Bruce Olson was from Minneapolis, Minnesota, grew up in the nominal Lutheran church and family, but he was uh, hungry for truth and God, so he was seeking God, and he received Christ as a personal Savior in the Lord when he was in high school. And then one day he heard about the, 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 the unreached you know, Indian tribe on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. With that, he just obeyed God. He was a radical and reckless followers of Christ. And so without, without any church's financial support, with just clothes in his back, he went to Venezuela. And then he attended a university for one year to learn Spanish. And then he ventured out to meet this uh, uh, primitive people called, uh, uh, what is that, Motilones. Motilones Indian, or some people call berries. In the next 30 years, he lived with them. He learned their tonal language and evangelized them and built the clinics and schools for them. I'm, very, I, I'm oversimplifying his story. I, I really recommend to, you know, it's a great story, great, uplifting, incredible autobiography, spiritual, you know, reading. So, they called him, I mean, the, by the way, the title of the book was Brusco because that's how they pronounce Bruce. So Indians called him Brusco. That's, that's the only way it is. So once the, the book Brusco came out, his story became well-known, and some Colombian reporters wrote uh, several incorrect and prejudiced articles about him that the uh, Colombian major guerrilla called the ELN, Ejercitos Liberación Nacional, they actually kidnapped him and then sentencing him and imprisoned him uh, with a charge that he was destroying indigenous uh, native Indian culture and colonizing them with a Western imperialism. Guess what happened to him? ELN has to release him less than uh, eight months. Why? Indians were upset. Indians who were adamant and protested against his imprisonment 
So then later, President of Colombia said this, this is the first white man to be defended by indigenous community in our country, let alone in Latin America. Hallelujah. So in that book, there was a story uh, about a story that after some Indians were converted, one day one of the Indian brothers came to him, I mean broke his leg during the hunting and uh, came to Brusco and asked him to uh, pray for healing of his uh, broken leg. Brusco was uh, hesitant because he prayed for you know, healing of uh, malaria and pink eyes and other things, but he never saw anyone healed of a uh, you know, broken leg supernaturally. But because his Indian brother was so sincere, he reluctantly prayed for his broken leg. And next day, Brusco saw that Indian brother walking normally. So he was shocked and asked, what happened? Your leg is normal. And then Indian Christian looked at him strangely and, Brusco, remember, we pray for we prayed to the Father God, and he healed me. What's new? Bruce, Bruce Olson reported that there are many incredible healing miracles in the early days of his mission work. But once clinic was built, they were less supernatural healings. Now, does that mean God was healing these Indians less than before? Of course not. God was still healing them, but now through modern medicine. This is what C.S. Lewis called natural miracle. Natural miracle. You know, C.S. Lewis, you know, noting his, you know, wrote this in his book, Miracle, that miracles do not break the law of nature. When God performs a miracle, he intervenes the natural processes to do something only God can do. And often we confine and define miracles only to supernatural realm. God's miracle can happen both naturally and supernaturally, sometimes at the same time. So when, you pray, when we pray to God, we must trust God the way and time he heals us. So let us remember what James said. That is, we pray and anoint a sick person with oil, in the name of the Lord. Amen? Faith and medicine goes together. There is a bigger balance, cure, in the third principle. Here we see balance cure not only physical, but also mental. Not only individual, but also communal. So let's see the third principle. That is, why do we pray? It's because prevailing prayers aims at communal restoration. Look at the verse 15 and 16. Prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is a powerful and effective. Here, James provides an important, insightful connection between health and sin. You know, Greek text in verse 15 simply says the prayer of a faith will save the sick person. Prayer of a faith will save sick person. Healing sickness and confessing faith are coupled together. 
So two critical observations we need to make here is this. First, many biblical uh, scholars think that sickness in this passage are psychosomatic rather than purely physical. You know, certain illnesses are the, simply the consequences of living in a sinful world. Uh, that's why confession is called as a prerequisite for healing. And I know a little bit about the psychosomatic illnesses. You know, I have a routine PMS, pre-message syndrome. Every Saturday evening, Sunday morning, you know, I cannot eat food well. When I'm under stress, my body breaks down. That's why 10 years ago, I had a myocarditis, the inflammation of a heart muscle by infection or virus. You know, I experienced a constipation, indigestion, all gross stuff. And then common misunderstanding people have toward the psych psychosomatic illnesses is that they think the pain is in, in the mind. So they think it's just imaginary. Let me tell you, pain is on the body. Okay, cause might be mine, but pain is on the body, so don't make a fun of a psychosomatic, you know, sick people. So second now critical observation, more importantly, it's more like a theological, you know, uh, observation. James said, if you have us, you know, James calls us what? Confess our sins to who? Not to God, to each other. Not to God, to each other. He said, if we confess our sins to each other, God will heal us. That's what James is teaching us here. I think the best Christian understanding of today's passage was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. His short book, Life Together. Life Together is a classic that I frequently uh, return and reflect. At the beginning of our house church ministry, our shepherds, uh, we read it together. Probably we need to read it again in the near future. So let me explain the importance of uh, confessing our sins to each other through Bonhoeffer. Okay? So there is a quote. Let me read the quote. It may be that Christians notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough of a fellowship does not occur because though they have a fellowship with one another as believers, as a devout people, they do not have a fellowship as the undevout, as the sinners. Pious fellowship, pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy, the fact that we are sinners. You know, Barnabas points out the problematic reality of many Christians today that they are lonely, even after corporate worship and Sunday fellowship. Many Christians are lonely. Why? Formal corporate worship and fellowship will not allow us to be ourselves, but unintentionally forces us to wear our religious mask. That is, we are devout followers of Christ. You know, as Martin Luther said, all Christians are saints and sinners at the same time. Every Christian has, going, has an ongoing struggle over sins 
And every Christian is broken and trying to recover from sin's effect toward the holy influence of God. And we all need safe place and space to share our earthly journey. That's what our house church is about. That's why we sold out to house church. For us, house church is not a program. This is, a, this is a how we're supposed to be church. Balancing house church, I mean, balancing, you know, house church during Friday and then, you know, corporate church in the, you know, on Sunday, that's a how it's supposed to be. Let me read one more quote from Boniface. Why is it that now, Boniface said about the confessing, it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother. God is a holy and sinless. He is a just judge of evil and enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is sinful as we are. We know from his own experience the dark night. Um, he knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go a brother than to the holy God? But if we do we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. Who can give the certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of a sin, we are not dealing with ourselves, but actually dealing with the living God? God gives us this certainty through our brother who listened to our confession. Our brother breaks the circle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of other Christian brothers or sisters. Amen? Note this duly. Confessing my sins to God Individually, often is easier because we automatically assuming God's grace and forgiveness. You know, our theology works fast. But when we confess the same sins before others, then we feel the awfulness of sin and we appreciate God's forgiveness. And through the confidential caring, hearing about brothers and sisters, we feel that God's presence, and we know what's like to confess. That's what Bonhoeffer is saying. And Bonhoeffer is saying something new. He's repeating what Jesus already said in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, truly I'll tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I'll tell you, if two of you on earth agree with anything they ask for, it will be done for them in my, by my Father in heaven. For two or three gathered together, there am I with them. You have to recognize this. Christian sanctification, Christian spiritual growth, requires a Christian community. God didn't call us to grow spiritually in the individualistic way, but always in community. We grow individually and communally at the same time. You know, the history of a Christian monastic movement, it, it confirms that. 
at the beginning of a monastic movement, so-called church, you know, desert fathers, they all went to desolate places like a desert to contemplate on God individually, like a hermit. And a little bit later, you know what they found out? It's hard. <laughs> In, try to grow spiritually, individualistically, it's hard. So guess what? They start to form a small group. And this is how the monastery, monastery, you know, uh, uh, built and, and began. When we share our struggles together, in the name of the Lord, there, we not only confess, but receive support of intercession. You know, incredible thing about, uh, for me, the house church experience is this. Sometimes, you know, somebody rubbed me in the wrong way. Yeah, I'm confessing right now. And uh, we're staying here. Okay. But uh, once I start praying, guess what happened? You know, intercession brings me so close to someone that I used to not like. That is a confession. Seriously, when you pray for somebody in the name of Christ, you, the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and warm your heart toward that person. And you recognize that the person is trying to also progress in his spiritual journey, just like you. And you find the camaraderie right there. So confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, God will make you strong and healthy. That's what James is telling us today. And then James gives us a good example, just like a you know, pastor backup sermon with illustration. And the example is Elijah. Look at the verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly, actually in Greek text, is a prayed prayer. Intensified, doubly intensified. It would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Why did James appeal to this particular incident from Elijah's life as an example of effective prayers? You know, James, you know Elijah has other I mean, spectacular you know, uh, uh, examples of a powerful prayer or for instance, did he encounter the 450 Baal prophets and the 400 Asherah prophets on the top of the Mount Camel and they single-handedly, you know, you know, took care of them, right? Or, given the context of uh, healing, Elijah raised the son of Zarephath's widow. He healed that person. Why in the world James is using Elijah's prayer? for the net drought for Israel. As if By the way, drought back then means a national crisis. It's just like a pandemic in our town. Drought means no farming, no food, no economy, no life. Total, total, you know, uh, uh, emergency. So I wonder if Elijah were American today, what did he pray? Will he pray, 
make America great again? I think Elijah will pray the opposite. Make Americans small and suffering until he repents to God. You know what Elijah prayed here was God's promise and for God's glory. Obviously, Elijah did not have his own people. Even though he was anti-Israel, anti-nationalistic, he loved his people. And once again, I want to remind you, this is the difference between nationalism and patriotism. Nationalism is a blind love. We are not called to be a nationalist. We are patriot. Patriotism is a truthful love to, to strengthen and make the country healthy. You know, while nationalism signs up with anything that makes my country great, patriotism seeks God's purpose and God's peace and justice in our country. What Elijah was doing here is uh, what uh, many uh, scholars, biblical scholars call the Deuteronomist you know, prayer. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God gave a warning to Israelites, actually warning plus a uh, uh, promise. He said, do we have a Deuteronomy? Yeah, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on earth. However, verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decree I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will strike you with a wasting disease, with a fever, inflammation, and scorching heat, and drought, with a blight and mildew which will plague you until you perish. You know what Elijah is praying? Is a praying God's promise and warning of Deuteronomy chapter 28 that Israel will return from its idol, Baalism, to God and rededicate its life to God's mission more than their material you know, prosperity. So prayer focuses communal restoration. Now let me share the final verses of the book of James. Verse uh, uh, 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from error of their way will save them from death and cover over all a multitude of sins, period. And that's the end of the book of James. Let me ask you, doesn't the last word of James look a little downer and abrupt? You know, many scholars feel this is a very strange, awkward, and a difficult conclusion. You know, I say downer because he could mention, you know, something like uh, God's grace and peace be with you all, like Paul ended all these letters, right? Oh, he's a Jew, so he can say shalom, you know, you know. Why did James end this letter with a call for evangelism and rescue mission? This is a fourth principle. Prevailing prayer, the ultimate prevailing prayer, six, compassionate rescue. Compassionate rescue. You know what James is uh, talking about at the last, you know, uh, verse of his letter? He was talking about his own rescue and restoration 
by reason Christ Jesus Christ, his half-brother. Do you guys remember the introduction to the book of James? James was not supportive of Jesus' you know, a, a public ministry. He was skeptical. Even though he was the closest to Jesus as a brother, but he was a nothing but a cynic. But what happened? After resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus took the time out to meet James. So 1 Corinthians 15, 7 said, Then the Lord, he, Jesus, appeared to James and to all the apostles. And James was so grateful for Christ's compassionate rescue of him. And I want to say this. The greatest prayer is rescuing the lost. That is the greatest prayer. Yeah. The greatest prayer is not, you know, you become a billionaire or forest become a, you know, a million member church. No. The greatest prayer that we can do is to rescue our VIP. That is the greatest prayer. Why? That's prayer our Lord did on the cross. That rescuing prayer for rescue brought me here and you here. And we are worshiping together today, not just tomorrow, for eternity. The greatest prayer, greatest prayer, is to reaching out the lost. And that's what James is saying. You know, actually what James is saying is that, uh, you know, Daniel, book of Daniel ends the same way. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of uh, heaven. And then he explained what does it mean, wise people. Wise people lead many to righteousness, and they will shine like the stars in heaven forever and ever. Wise people know the value of souls. Do you know the value of souls? Do you know the value of yourself? Do you know how much God loves you? That's how much God loves lost people around us. Greatest prevailing prayer is the one that intercedes, rescues, and redeems the lost. Let's pray that we also, our prayer become like this kind of prayer. Let's pray together.